Please turn in your Bibles to the book of Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 6. If you're unsure where that is, you are in good company. Find the book of Matthew, go back to Malachi, and one more book, and you'll be in Zechariah. This evening we have the privilege of opening God's Word, and trust that we will see Christ clearly in the pages of Scripture here. As you know, we've been traveling through various Old Testament texts, and I thought um, an interesting um, metaphor for maybe what we're doing is if you, if, if you watch the news, sometimes they'll show you a globe or show you a map, and then they'll just, in a, in a second or two, zoom in on a certain city and, and drop you in on the streets of a certain city uh, where they have this news story. Well, we're kind of doing that as we do this, uh, this flyover of the Old Testament, and then we drop you in on a certain text like we are this evening. And there's certainly challenges to that from um, a preacher's standpoint, and I know there's challenges to you as well as, as you come each week and, and, oh, we were in Micah last week, and now we're in Zechariah, and it's kind of a head jerk maybe. But if you, um, hopefully we can see a little context of this book and understand what it says about our Lord Jesus Christ. Here we see that um, as, as we've gone through these texts, we've seen Christ as David's greater son who was set up as king over the rebellious nations as we sang about from Psalm 2. We've seen Christ as the one who rules as king and also as priest in the order of Melchizedek as we saw in Psalm 110. Isaiah showed us Christ as the suffering servant who acts wisely. We've seen Christ as the branch already in Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And Ezekiel also showed us Christ as the good shepherd who is like David and yet is also, as Isaiah had called him, a servant. And last week we saw in the book of Micah how God's covenant promises are fulfilled and how God's grand and sometimes stealthy providence fulfills these promises even down to where the Christ child would be born in Bethlehem. I trust as we've been on this journey that, that you've seen threads come together to weave this beautiful tapestry of who our Lord Jesus Christ is. And, and I think that's why my, my mind was drawn to that song about more about Jesus would I know. As we study God's word, we see Christ in more and more of his fullness. And I trust these Old Testament passages have helped you to see that he is truly the seed of the woman covenant mediator and fulfiller, prophet, priest, and king, redeemer, servant, savior, branch, son of man, pierced one, man of sorrows, Messiah. And as we can now say, looking back in the new covenant, looking back, we can say he is our Lord and our soon coming king. And here we've reached nearly the end of the Old Testament. I think we have a couple more times together in this series from the very end of the Old Testament, and I, I gave you a little tip-off that Zechariah is not that familiar of a book, perhaps, to us. It's not helpful, especially if you're like me and have dyslexia, that you have Zephaniah, and then one book in between it and Zechariah. And, and I, I grumbled a little about that to myself, but then I realized that I've named two of my sons names that begin with the letter J and end with I-A-H. So... I'll leave that aside right now. But um, before we jump in, I'll give you my brief outline, four points, four words, 
Crown, branch, blessing, and call. Crown, branch, blessing, and call. We're going to pick up at verse 9. And before we do, let me pray and ask God's blessing upon the reading and the preaching of his holy word. Let us pray. Lord, we are needy people, and yet we are rich, Lord, because you have given us all that we need for life and godliness in the pages of scripture that we now hold in our hands. What a blessing that is. Lord, your word is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. So, Lord, would you do your work in your people? And may we see Christ in the pages of Zechariah this evening. And, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Zechariah 6, beginning with verse 9. And the word of the Lord came to me, take from the exiles Heldai, Tobijah, and Jediah, who have arrived from Babylon, and go the same day to the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. Take from them silver and gold, and make a crown, and set it upon the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and say to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, the man whose name is the branch... For he shall branch out from his place and shall build his temple of the build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord, and shall bear royal honor, and shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. And the crown shall be in the temple of the Lord as a reminder to Helam, Tobijah, Jediah, and Hin, the son of Zephaniah. And those who are far off shall come and help to build the temple of the Lord. And you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And this shall come to pass if you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. Amen. And we praise God that he has spoken to us in his holy and inerrant word. As always and as I've already said, we need a little bit of context of where we are in Scripture. Zechariah ministered, the, Zechariah the prophet ministered to the people of God after the exile. If you, may, if you recall, Cyrus, the king of Persia, which was the nation who conquered Babylon, and, and scripture still uses this term Babylon, even though it had been conquered by the Persians, it was still a region that, that they referred to as Babylon. But Cyrus was now the king. And in, he instituted a new policy by which he allowed people to return to their native homeland. That was just kind of his, his executive policy. How, that's how he dealt with those exiles that were living close to the, 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 the capital there. And so he sent them back, and, and some stayed in Babylon, but many returned to the land of Israel. And... Uh, they began the process of, of building their homes and rebuilding the temple. You read about that in Ezra and Nehemiah. And, and Zechariah was a contemporary of the prophet Haggai. And both of those prophets were used of God to spur the people on when the work of rebuilding the temple had kind of languished and stopped. And you see it particularly if you read the, the book of Haggai, you see how he condemned the people for building their own houses and said, look, you have these nice paneled houses. Look at the, the work of the rebuilding of the temple. It has stopped. Get back to work on the temple. Zechariah says similar things and calls them to, to the same message in a very different way. 
And God had spoke through uh, Zechariah through a series of visions, night visions, eight visions that he had given. And our text this evening comes right at the end of those visions. And in those visions, uh, God showed through symbols how he was fulfilling, he would fulfill his promises. Now, some have seen this passage that we've just read as an appendix on that, but it's better, in a sense, to see it as a grand finale to the show of, of what God is doing. Oh, and what he, we have seen, if you've read the previous five and a half chapters, the visions that, that God gave to Zechariah sh showed in somewhat veiled pictures what the coming kingdom would be like. The, the suffering of God's people would be redeemed. God's enemies would be judged. The temple would be rebuilt. And our, as our text that's before us shows that this, the, the true temple is much more than the humble dwelling place that they were seeking to rebuild as they were being reestablished in the land. God's true temple is even greater than the temple of Solomon that they uh, wistfully remembered. If you read Ezra and Nehemiah, that temple, of course, was destroyed by the Babylonians in 586. So we, we, we see first this crown. And, and really, I don't want to draw your attention to the crown, per se, but the crowning or the coronation that we have read about here. Now, this idea of coronation is probably fresh in your minds because you've seen recently the coronation of a king that, that, that had not been seen for some, I believe it was 70 years almost to the month. We had not seen a coronation of a British monarch until uh, I think it was the Saturday before last when you saw this, this massive crown, the St. Edward's crown placed upon the head of King Charles. I did a little Google search and, and uh, just kind of wondered what public opinion was, and, and, and maybe nobody wanted to write about it, and probably rightfully so, but a couple of years ago, there was a poll taken, that, and there were several people that, or, or many people that wanted William to be king. They wanted the, the crown to skip the generation, but we know that was not to be. Royal law would not allow that, and King Charles was crowned and is the king of, of the United Kingdom. But as we see in our opening verses here, we see these three exiles that are, that are returning to the homeland. They're bringing with them silver and gold, and they're bringing it back to the land of Israel. And the word of the Lord comes to the prophet and tells him to make a crown using both the silver and the gold. Now, it was probably nothing like St. Edward's crown, but, but commentators think it was somewhat of an elaborate crown of, of, of maybe multiple circlets of, of silver and gold together, this composite crown that perhaps was somewhat elaborate. And um, he's instructed to go to the home of Josiah. Some have surmised that maybe Josiah was the silversmith that helped to, to fashion this crown. We really don't know, and it doesn't really matter, but... It, he's given instructions on who to crown. And he is to place the crown on the head of Joshua, the high priest. Now, perhaps that seems a bit odd to you. I hope that it does. And it, it should cause us to at least raise one eyebrow to say, wait a minute. He's crowning a priest. Well, the, the priests are different from kings. You see in the Old Testament, the priests have a specific job that is very distinct from the role of kings. And as you, as you know, the priests were of the line of Aaron. They were of the tribe of Levi. 
kings, especially after David, of course, were of the tribe of Judah. And they were to be descendants of King David. Um, if you think back in Chronicles, King Uzziah brought a curse upon himself because he functioned in the role of the priest. He grew proud, Scripture tells us, and he usurped the priest's role by burning incense on the altar. And he was rebuked by brave priests who said this. They said, it is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Go out of the sanctuary, for you have done wrong, and it will, not, it will bring you no honor from the Lord God. And if you read just a few verses down, you see that Uzziah was struck with leprosy for usurping the role of the priest. He did that which was displeasing to God. And so here we see the prophet commanded to place a crown upon the head of the high priest. What's going on here? Well, we are given the explanation for this. We might say, and some have said, that he got the wrong man. Or that scripture recorded the wrong man. And there are scholars, if, if you want to call them that, to say, well, it was actually Zerubbabel. And you read about Zerubbabel. He was of the line of Judah. He was in the, in the kingly line. And they say, well, it, they, they, the, the translators of this text got it wrong. It was Zerubbabel. But there's no textual evidence for that. It's clear that he placed the, head, the crown upon the head of the high priest. So what's going on? Well, we are given the explanation in our second point concerning the branch. And it's in very um, <clears throat> abrupt language. If you, if you were to look at the original and translate it literally and woodenly, it would read something like this in verse 12. Behold a man, branch, his name. The very term branch points back to the line of David. As I mentioned briefly in the introductory comments, that this, this idea of branch is something that is seen in Isaiah, it's seen in Ezekiel, it's seen in Jeremiah. And in Isaiah chapter 11, we read, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. And there the prophet Isaiah paints us a picture of the Messiah, one on whom the Spirit of the Lord rests, one who delights in the fear of the Lord, one who judges righteously, and one who has righteousness and faithfulness as his belt. And if you read that text in, in, in um, Isaiah 11, you think about that must have been in the mind of the Apostle Paul when he wrote about the, 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 uh, the armor of God. And about how the Lord Jesus Christ had righteousness and faithfulness as his belt. And, and these, these messianic images should fill our mind as they likely filled the minds of the readers, early readers of this text. And we see that, that our text says three things about the branch. It says he shall branch out from his place, he shall build the temple of the Lord, and he shall bear royal honor. He shall first branch out from his place. That points to the fact that he would come from among them. The days of the return from exile were, were dark days. It was, it was a trick of some 900 miles from Babylon back to the land 
of Israel. They were, they, were, they, were, they were lean days and dry days, and long gone were the, was the extravagance and the pomp of the end of David's reign and the elaborate palace and temple under Solomon. You think about if you read about the end of David's reign and all the, the piles of wealth and gold that he left to Solomon to use to build the temple, it's staggering. Those days are long gone here where we are in Scripture. The people have been in exile. Their homeland was sacked. The temple destroyed. The gold carried off. And only recently have some of them come back to make a humble beginning. And they hoped it would eventually become a nation and a worshiping people with a temple of their own. But when Isaiah spoke in chapter 53 about a servant who would grow up before them as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground, it, should, it gave them hope of one that would flourish and grow despite the darkness of the days and the poverty of their situation. They latched onto this. They eagerly looked forward to the one that would branch out from his place. Secondly, we're told that he would build the temple of the Lord. Not only would he flourish and grow from his place, but he would build the temple of the Lord. And as we've said, Joshua, the priest, was not the one currently rebuilding the temple. That was what Zerubbabel had already started. He had already begun that effort and would complete it with the help of the exiles. But no, this temple that is talking about that the branch would build is something more. It's the temple from Isaiah 2, which, which is established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow into it. It is more than a building. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the temple. And we see that plainly in John 2 when, when Jesus has had drawn the ire of the Jewish leaders as he cleansed the temple. They questioned his action, and his response to them came in the form of a challenge when he said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will build it up. They replied with scorn, it took 46 years to build this temple. You're going to build it up in three days? What are you talking about? And John tells us explicitly, just in case we don't get it, that he was speaking about the temple of his body. Previously, the tabernacle in the wilderness had been the dwelling place of God that sat in the center of the camp. And then the temple built by Solomon took its place, magnificent as it was, and patterned after that tabernacle of old in the wilderness. <clears throat> there, too, was the dwelling place of God and the, and the headquarters of the sacrificial system. The atonement for the sins of the people could not happen without the temple. It was the place where the bulls and lambs were slaughtered and their blood pulled out, poured out. It was from there that the goat of Azazel that we read about in Leviticus 16 about the Day of Atonement, it was from there that that goat was sent out into the wilderness bearing the sins of the people outside the camp. It's very difficult for the people to worship without that temple. It was the very centerpiece of their worship. And even though they had tried for 70 years to worship in some way, they, because they had been forced to after the temple was destroyed and they were driven from the land, but, land, but it was impossible to do it properly as each piece of furniture in the temple supported the God-given way that they were given to worship. So imagine how eager the exiles were to, to build the temple. 
And then moving ahead again to John 2, imagine how indignant the Jewish leaders were when they only viewed Christ's words from their own perspective, their own narrow and sin-darkened understanding as they did there in John 2. But remember that Jesus is the word that became flesh and tabernacled among us. He is the fulfillment of the temple. And he's also building the temple as he builds his church. Consider what Paul said to us in 1 Corinthians. He said, do you not know that you are God's temple and God's spirit dwells in you? Yes, Jesus is the temple, but there's more. We too are the temple. We are the place where God dwells by his spirit in believers. Those who have been redeemed and called and brought into God's family who are filled with God's spirit are stones in that temple as well. He who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. We read again in 1 Corinthians 6, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own, for you are bought with a price? Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. And we have the remarkable language of 2 Peter Two, where he says, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves are like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We are the temple. And as God does his work in the church, drawing sinners to himself, saving them and justifying them freely through the work of Christ accomplished on the cross. He transforms them and fills them with his spirit and is building up a spiritual house. We who were strangers and aliens and afar off have been brought nigh unto God. We are saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone. Amen. The branch is building his temple. And what an amazing thing that he does it with stones like us. People, you and me, God is building a spiritual house with us. Amen. What a blessing that is. We see thirdly that this branch bears royal honor. How does he do this? Well, it says that he sits and he rules. And again, as you think about a priest, what does a priest do? A priest doesn't sit. He stands. He is always busy. There is always work for a priest to do. He's always getting ready for that next sacrifice or cleaning up from the last one. But a king sits and rules. After he conquers all his enemies, what does he do? He sits on his throne and he rules those he has conquered. And here we see the branch sits and rules. We see the paradox in this symbolism. Christ has accomplished his sacrificial work. He is now seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. He has accomplished what he has come to do. He has has completed his once-for-all sacrifice of himself. And that sacrifice has been offered and accepted before God. He He it is who is also a priest. As Hebrews 7 teaches us that it is through his sacrificial death... And triumphant resurrection that he is both priest and king. It says there he became a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent. 
but by the power of an indestructible life. Amen. And his ascension was his coronation, where he is now enthroned as king, and yet is continually making intercession for us as priests. I love how our shorter catechism helps us think in those categories of prophet, priest, and king. And concerning Christ's priestly work, it says this, Christ executeth the office of a priest in his once offering up of himself a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and reconcile us to God and in making continual intercession for us. Isn't that beautiful? And it's through this glorious union of the priestly and kingly roles that Christ has accomplished our peace. We can now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. What a blessing it is. And that leads us to our third point, the blessing. And this is a very brief point. We'll just simply say that, that, the, that this crown that served as a symbol of the coming branch... This branch, this crown made of two precious metals, which represented the two roles of, of our Lord Jesus in his priestly work and his kingly work. This branch who would branch out and build his temple. That crown then was to be placed in the temple. And it was to serve as a reminder to those returned exiles that the branch was coming. Isn't that wonderful? That they, that they have a tangible reminder that, that, that the humble position that they are in, the poverty that they, that they are in right now is not the end of the story. The branch is coming and it served as a reminder of it. Their hope was beyond the building of the physical temple to the coming of the one who embodied the temple, the one who is the temple. And just as we sometimes feel like exiles and pilgrims, and that's really what we are here in our journey toward the celestial city, we know that the branch will return. He has come, but we look forward to his coming in the end. And we know that Christ is building his church and that we are living stones, as Peter said. We know that the Lord Jesus, the branch, is seated on the throne. And oh, how we long for the day when we see him face to face. Even so, come Lord Jesus. And finally, our fourth, fourth point, we have the call. We see a call in this text as we... As we look at um, verse 15 here, and those who are far off shall come and help to build the temple of the Lord. And you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, and this shall come to pass if you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. We see a two-part call here, a call to evangelism and a call to obedience. The immediate fulfillment of verse 15 was that more exiles did return. And those exiles did assist Zerubbabel in the work of rebuilding the temple. There was a soon fulfillment of that. But we also know that we see that language that, that, uh, that is given there, that those who are far off, I hope that's familiar to you. Do you remember Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2 when he said... That those who are far off can come near. We read that for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So those who are far off need to hear the message of the gospel. Those who have not heard need to hear about Jesus who is building his temple. They need to be brought in. They need to hear the hope that is in Christ. 
we are invited to draw near through the work of Christ. And really, those who are far off is all of us until we heard that call, until God drew us to himself. Were it not for that, we would all be far off. We would all be lost and without hope. But we have a privilege and a mandate to participate in the work of building God's temple, to take the gospel to those who need to hear it. As one commentator said, those whom Jesus saves and makes his own do not become passengers along for the ride, passively watching as Jesus builds his kingdom. No, we are to share in the work of temple building. And that will look differently for all, for each of us. That doesn't mean every one of you should sell your possessions and go to some unknown tribe to, to try to translate their language and take the gospel to them. But some of us should, maybe some in this room, I don't know. And I love that our church actively participates with those who are taking the gospel to those who have never heard. And I trust that that's our passion, that, that as we think about the work that Christ has done, we should have a passion to take that gospel, to take that good news to those who have never heard. God will accomplish his work and he uses us in the building of his temple. And finally, the other call that closes this passage is the call to obedience. The last word here is this, and this shall come to pass if you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. God will accomplish his work through those who seek to faithfully follow him in obedience. We are called to participate in that work. Not that God needs us, as I think has already been said from this pulpit today, but, but yet we have the privilege of participating in that work. And, and I, I meant to say a moment ago, for, for, for many of us here, it might just be offering an encouraging word. It might just be sharing what God is doing in your own heart and life. It might just be walking alongside someone who's grieving and someone who is in need. That's taking the gospel to, to your brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's part of this call. But it's also a call to faithful obedience, to diligent obedience to the voice of the Lord your God. What a blessing it is. We have a king who rules, has, who has been crowned, a priest who has sacrificed himself, and, and he now ever lives to make intercession for us, as the author of Hebrews says. He is the branch who is building his temple. His call is upon us to participate in the work of the spread of the gospel. And his call is upon us to walk in faithful obedience. He is our king. And may we, along with the hymn writer, sing, crown him with many crowns. The lamb upon his throne. Hark how the heavenly anthem drowns all music but its own. Awake, my soul, and sing of him who died for thee, and hail him as thy matchless king for all eternity. Let us pray.